0: Okay, let's look at our scripture that can be found in your bulletin on page four. This is uh, Luke 20:27 20, through 40. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection." And they asked him a question saying, "Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age And to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead but of the living for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any question. The word of the Lord. What's been said that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. Uh, I think that's true. Uh, But I want to talk about uh, two specific certainties that are true, not tongue-in-cheek, and that's life and death. We talk often in church about life, how to have a better life, Jesus talked often about life and often about death. Those are ultimately the only two certainties in life, aren't they? We live and then we die. Even in in ancient cultures, as as we've looked uh, through history and archaeology, there has always been an anticipation of life after death. You can go back to the Egyptian Book of the Dead where they talk about this world that is to come. They uh, uh, found a tomb of the pharaoh uh, Cheops 5,000 years ago. And in this tomb, he had constructed a a solar boat to be able to sail through uh, to the other world. In the ancient Greek culture, they used to put a silver coin in the mouth of the corpse. And that coin would be used uh, for them to pay their fare across the mystic river to the resurrection life. The ancient American Indians, they would bury an American Indian with his bow and his arrow. Indeed, sometimes even his dead pony so that he would be able to hunt in the happy hunting ground on the other side. Norsemen likewise were buried with their horse and their armor to be able to fight and hunt in the world to come. And in ancient Greenland, children were actually buried with a dog to guide them through Uh, The maze on the other side of death. There's always been an anticipation of a world that is to come. Indeed, this concept that we live in in our world of uh, secularism in the United States is uh, somewhat at odds compared to culture, the world. Because secularism essentially says that there is only this world and there is only this age. And so we try to live this way. But the truth is we can't avoid the sense that there is something that is coming, something that maybe we should be preparing for. But we're not sure quite how to prepare for it. You know, I say this all the time. There's really only two times when people want somebody like me. It's when they get married and when they die. Otherwise, I'm largely irrelevant. I'm kind of that weird guy at the cocktail party, right? What do you say to him? I don't know. But when somebody dies, they want me there right away. Assurance and hope that it's not all for naught, that there is a life that is to come, that it doesn't all end and fade to black, the fading of our lives. Jesus, most people want to put Jesus in the role of a good teacher, a good role model that teaches us how to reform our lives, not about the resurrection of life it's kind of like the Sadducees here the Sadducees who believed did not believe in a resurrection wanted to place Jesus in a box to limit his power but Jesus would have none of it because Christ came to enact a bigger plan not to reform our lives but to resurrect them so the question I have for you today is simply this what are you looking for Jesus to do in your life? To reform it or to resurrect it? Is there a bigger plan? Because what you believe he came to do is what you will come to him for. What you need from Jesus is exactly what you will receive from Jesus. So what's your need? Reformation or resurrection? We're going to look at three specific points, one per hour of this next three-hour sermon. Number one, we need to look at the fault of the Sadducees. How were they wrong? How did they miss the boat on this thing? What was their fault? Number two, we're going to look at the truth of Christ. How Jesus responds to them. How he puts them in the right. And then finally, we're going to look at the choice that we have to face. Whether to live a Sadducee life or a resurrection life. Well, let's look at point number one. The fault of the Sadducees. What do we know about the Sadducees? We really don't hear about them a lot in the Gospels until the end. Because the majority of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, where the Sadducees were focused at the power center in Jerusalem. They were really in charge of the temple. They were who made up the great Sanhedrin. So they were the money and the power, if you will. How do you remember the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Many have caused uh, people to say, well, that's the reason you call them the Sadducees. You see, they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection, so they don't have any uh, hope. Well, what about their theology? The Sadducees, they they were strict theologians. They were almost brutal in their application of the Mosaic Law. They were the ones that carried the heavy stick because they controlled the temple and the temple guard. And so they, they enforced the law of Moses with a club. Now, it's strange that I can say they, believed, they didn't believe in resurrection and yet they were strict theologians. How can that be? Because the Bible actually speaks often about resurrection, doesn't it? In the Old Testament. For instance, Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives... And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. How about the psalmist in Psalm 49? This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they're destined for the grave and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Well, the reason the Sadducees considered themselves strict theologians, the the way they got around this was they adhered to the laws of Moses, the Torah. And they considered all the other books of the Bible as sort of selective corresponding documents that buttress the law of Moses. And so since the Torah doesn't specifically speak of resurrection, they said there is no resurrection. They were selective. Not that different from the variety of different uh, theologians you have today, such as the Jesus seminar, where they pick and choose what they like and they build their theology out of it. Well, whatever you believe is ultimately will determine how you behave, right? So since the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection... Thus believing that really all there was to life was this life. They were immensely concerned with power and money and accumulation. This ultimately led to corruption. Talked about the temple and the corruption. It was a result of the Sadducees. It was a result of their beliefs. I mean, if there really is no accounting for my life, then what difference does it make how I live in this life? Now, the Pharisees believed in resurrection, right? But their thoughts were very undeveloped. See, the Pharisees believed that there would be a resurrection, but the resurrected life would be very, very similar to the regular life. You'd continue to marry in the afterlife. You would continue to wear the old clothes that you wore in the afterlife. Indeed, if you were a Jew and died they were trying to figure out how this would work, how everybody would get back to uh, Jerusalem. Some people said there were actually tunnels under the earth and all the Jews would roll down to Jerusalem where they would spring up to live their normal resurrected afterlife. The Sadducees thought this was ridiculous. And so they would come up with these riddles to infuriate the Pharisees, to show them how ridiculous. In other words, they would... Not They would buttress their point by invalidating their point. And so after the Pharisees have been vanquished by Jesus, it's their turn. They're going to come up to Jesus and they're going to, in essence, invalidate Him by asking one of these questions that no one can answer. And that's the way they're going to cut Him off at the knees. They don't really want to turn Him over to Pilate and have Him killed necessarily. They simply want to bring him back down to the level below them. And so they test him with this question. Moses wrote for us, teacher, that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is the principle of levirate marriage. It's in the Torah. Okay, if a man married a woman and he died, the brother was supposed to take the woman as wife and have children this was a way to preserve the inheritance of the family, the inheritance of the land that was given to them, and in essence to uh, stop the extinction of the family line, that it would live on, that it would go on, at least in the Sadducees' mind. This is how we were to continue. And so they tell this story. You know, one brother dies, and then the next brother, and so on and so on, until seven brothers die having been the husband of this wife. And then the question, well, at the resurrection, whose wife will this woman be? It's a argument that they call a reductio ad absurdium argument. It's the argument that my children would give with me all the time at my house. Which is essentially to give an argument that's so ridiculous that it invalidates the point. Now, there are a couple things that we can... Ascertain from this uh, parable, this story that they told. And the first is that this woman is an extremely dangerous woman. Right? I mean, if I was number two guy, no problem. But by number four brother, I'm beginning to think I need to take a vacation and never come back. They're trying to, uh, 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 you know, take off the mask and dethrone Jesus. But Jesus responds to them. And there's actually two parallel responses uh, in Matthew and Mark. The story is told in three of the four Gospels. And in those two Gospels, uh, Jesus adds, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. I bet that went over really well with the Sadducees, the leaders of the temple, right? You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. And Jesus gives two arguments. The first is that there are two ages. Notice in verse 34, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Okay, when Jesus uh, uses the term sons of, it means that you, uh, those who have the characteristics of whatever it is, that thing, that they are a son of. The sons of this age have the nature and characteristics of this age of which marriage and being given in marriage is part of that age. But it goes on to say, and notice that my printer doesn't say anything. I can't read this. But those who are considered worthy to attain to the next age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Jesus is saying That there is another age that you don't believe or validate Sadducees and in that age you can't die. Indeed, you're equal to the angels. Now notice, if you can't die, there there isn't a need for procreation, is there? There's a certain number of angels that was created. They're not creating more angels. Rather, there's no need anymore for procreation. Indeed, we're Equal to angels. So what does that mean, that we're equal to angels? Jesus goes on to say, because you're sons of God, you're sons of the resurrection. You're sons of a new nature. There's a transformation that has occurred. You're equal to the angels. And that goes even further, meaning the Bible tells us that we actually will judge angels. That we are above angels, but rather we have a new nature. A holy nature. A resurrection nature. There's a transformation. And in that transformation, Sadducees, things are not like the world that they are going to be. He goes on to say, there's not only two ages. But in this age that is to come, those who have died before, who have attained to that resurrection, are living notice he appeals to the law of Moses the very law that the Sadducees lean upon but that the dead are raised even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob he is not the God of the dead but the God of the living he's saying he's responding with a reductio ad absurdium argument is God the God of corpses Is God reigning over tombstones and rotting bodies? No, He's the God of the living. Sadducees, you're badly mistaken. You're thinking of God as I was, and therefore they were. But God is I am, and therefore they are. See, what was the problem with the Sadducees? They didn't know the scriptures. They studied them. They read them. But all they saw when they read the scriptures was simply this, that it's a manual for living. It's how you're supposed to live. It's how you're supposed to do the right thing. It's what you're supposed to avoid. It's kind of like that similar thing where you see the billboard that says, what America needs is the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not denying that America needs the Ten Commandments, but is that really all the Bible is about? How we are to live... Now Jesus is saying you don't understand. It's not just a manual about living. It's about me. It's not only about what is, but it is about what is to be. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of who I am and what I am going to do. In fact, the very reason why I'm here right now. But you're blind. Because all you see it is a manual for living. You're in error, Sadducees, because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. See, somewhere, the Sadducees had taken the great God, the one who created the heavens and earth, the one who sustains all things by His powerful word, and they'd put Him in a nice little box until He was so impotent that He couldn't change the present reality. That life was as it was. Indeed, God was okay with the world as it is. With the sin and the poverty and the ugliness and the jealousy and the envy. It's just the way it is. So all he can really do is give us some tips on how to have a better life. But that's the extent of his power. That's the extent of the willingness of the Sadducees to let God work in their life. Because ultimately it was their life, wasn't it? God was just a part of it. Our culture isn't that different than the Sadducee world, is it? Our culture proudly proclaims in our institutions of higher and lower learning, there is no God. There is only this world. Which is tantamount to committing intellectual suicide, frankly. Because if there is no God then there is no dignity, there is no value, and there is no purpose. It really doesn't matter how you live, because in the end, we're all going to be food for worms anyways. So the real question we have to ask is whether to commit suicide or not, because it doesn't matter. And the reality is everyone who's an intellectual atheist is a practical theist, because nobody lives like that. You can't. Or maybe there's not, our culture says, well, there's no God. Well, maybe I'm not going to go that far, but he's a benign God. All dogs go to heaven in the end, right? It's kind of like the Pharisees, except it's Pharisee light. Kind of like cola light or something, you know? We're all going to end up there. You always see the TV show where everybody ends up there, but they're all wearing the same clothes. They just have a nicer haircut, you know? Everybody gets there. Whatever happened in the world, the sin, the injustice, the whatever, that's over. He's a benign God. And if we're not careful, Christian, it's very easy to take Christ out of Christianity, isn't it? It's a Christianity with no resurrection. It's a Christianity that's all about reformation clean up your act, go to church, tithe more volunteer in the kids program. But it's not about a world that is to come. It's not about what God's doing right now. And so we build our heavens here. We build our castles. We immortalize ourselves or try to in the eyes of men. I don't know if you remember this movie, 1980, the movie Fame. Remember it? it took place in the uh, New York School of the Perform- High School of the Performing Arts. And uh, uh, it actually got a, a song, uh, the song, if you remember it, by Irene Cara, was nominated for best, uh, uh, best song. In fact, uh, let's hear it right now. Maestro, take it away. I was actually gonna do this as my act, okay? Because I wanted to give you a little flavor for you know, what you're gonna see at the variety show, okay? So this is the, here it is, here we go. Clear I haven't really worked on my lyrics and my lines yet. Yeah. By the way I dedicate this to Rachel Canoe. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, here we've got the lyrics. working, but it just, it wasn't working. Here's the best part. Now we may not sing that out loud. By the way, if that music had come on strong, I was going to do the whole act. <laughs> Don't you know who I am? I'm going to live forever. I'm going to make it to heaven. I'm going to light up the sky like a, f- a flame. And people are going to see me and they're going to remember my name. I got news for you guys. They're not. Maybe a couple. If you put your hope, anybody remember the name of a Sadducee, by the way? If that's all that God came to do to reform our life, man, I don't want this Christianity. So my question for you is simply this: Are you a closet Sadducee? Is all there is to your Christianity reformation? Is the result this that I live for this world? What I really want is to be somebody. To immortalize myself through my accomplishments, my power, my money, and my experience. It's a lie. You're living for the wrong world and you're living in the wrong way. And as you keep coming to Jesus for help and not for life, you're not going to find it. it was because he came for more than simply that. This brings me to the truth of Christ. What he did come to do. You know, this parable and this story and what Jesus says really shows us a vision of what is to come. Because marriage, ultimately, the purpose of marriage is to show us what will be. I mean, why did God create marriage in the first place, right? Remember? It was not good that man was alone. The first reason that God created marriage is because he wanted to give us a picture of union that we are to have with Christ. Ephesians 5.25 puts it this way, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, For no one has ever hated his own flesh. But nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a sign. You know, if you're driving to Orlando and you see a sign that says, Orlando, 60 miles and you drive 60 miles and you get to Orlando, do you need the sign anymore to tell you where Orlando is? No, you're in Orlando. What Jesus is saying is that this picture of union with God that is to come will ultimately occur at the resurrection, that that's the whole point, that you'll no longer need the symbol or the sign to point the reality because you'll be living the reality itself. But marriage is not only a picture of the union that you are to have with Christ, the union that God intends to have with you, of this oneness, but it's a picture of union that we are to have with each other. It's not good for man to be alone. But God didn't simply create a friend, did he? He created a a partner, a complement so that there might be the deepest union between humans, a physical, relational, emotional. There's no deeper oneness that can be experienced than with the person that you are married to, if God grants that. Remember Jesus' prayer, though, at the end, before he goes in John 17? I pray, Father, that they may be one. All those who believe in me may be one as we are one. Ultimately, what this is all about is about oneness. Marriage is given to us as a rehearsal for us to remember what God has in store for humanity. A oneness that is to come. And this is what will happen at the resurrection. The sign will give way to reality. Now, some have said to me, well, will we remember our spouses? Will all of that be for naught? First of all, we see, for instance, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that the man remembers his earthly relations, doesn't he? He remembers his brothers. The slate is not going to be wiped clean when we go to heaven. Rather, we will not forget the oneness that we experienced with our spouse. It will be perfected, but we will also experience oneness with everyone and to have oneness with everyone does not belittle the oneness we have with our spouse or the richness of the memories that we had with her. No, but the sign will give way to reality. Hell, by the way, is the ultimate antithesis of this. Notice how hell is always spoken of as a place of darkness. Can't really have oneness if you can't see, can you? and weeping, and gnashing of teeth. You could not get any further from God, and you cannot get any further from each other. Well, who gets to experience this resurrection life? Jesus goes on, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Well, who is worthy? Psalm 24, 3 puts it this way Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those who do not lift up their soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Only those who are pure and obedient to God. And the reality is, none of us are worthy. But Jesus clearly says it's those who are considered worthy. Well, who does the considering? It's God who considers. It's God who judges. See, that's why Jesus is here. To make this a reality. It's Wednesday. And Friday is coming. Of this holy week where Christ will be crucified in two days. And Jesus must experience the fracture. Of union with God. And union with man. He must be broken, that we be made whole. This terrible love in which God, by giving all away, will by some power that we cannot even hope to understand, transfer it to us. Hebrews 10:12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, the problem with this world is it can't be reformed. And the problem with me is I can't either. I don't need new rules. I need a new me. It's not enough for me to walk in heaven with my old clothes, is it? I'd screw up the whole thing the minute I walked in. To be considered worthy means that somehow I've been transformed. Somehow I've been transferred. Somehow I've been made a son of resurrection. A literal son of God. More beautiful and powerful and holy than the angels themselves. Christ must be broken and resurrected that I might be resurrected. Many of you know we have four children. One is in heaven. Our youngest daughter, uh, Maria, is, uh, we got from Nicaragua about seven years ago. I remember going to get Maria uh, in an orphanage in Nicaragua. And you know, if you really want to play uh, roulette, uh, adopt. Because you never know what you're going to get. And the older a child has been in the institution, you just don't know. And there were a lot of question marks we had with Maria. Things that we would find out that we just didn't know. But we did know that she was ours. And so we brought her, and we brought her into our home. And we loved her, and we waited. And as she continued to unfold into this beautiful girl, we did see some of the scars of the life that she lived before. See, we don't really think about this, but things like prenatal vitamins and food and care in those first years of your life are critical for intellectual development, for uh, the, the love that you have in terms of when your parent speaks to you right in front of your face, how you acquire language, all of those things. We realize that Maria didn't get some of those things. And so there's some things that Maria will never be able to do. Maria will probably live with us for the rest of our life. Maria will probably never be able to do a uh, long uh, uh, a multiplication. Can you do long multiplication? Good. <laughs> long division. Thank you, thank you, long division. Because there's synapses that just don't work there. Maria bears the scars of being abandoned as a child. And so there's some things, some reactions that she have, like when she always asks the question when she's going off, who's going to be home when I come home? Or maybe storing food every now and then. See, what I've learned as I parent Maria is not only to look at Maria as she is now, but to love and parent Maria for the Maria who she's going to be when the resurrection comes and all will be changed and I'll see Maria in her fullness. Isn't that the way we are to love one another? To put up with each other's faults? Because God hasn't resurrected us yet. We're broken. Maybe that's the way we're to look at our spouse. That God... It's not only loving her for who she is now, but who she'll ultimately be, which is who she was meant to be in the first place. That's what Jesus came to do, to give us a bigger vision, a bigger picture, to live so much more than the Sadducee life. So, what Jesus do you want? The Reformation Jesus? What hope do you want? What future do you want? The beauty is the resurrection life. When Christ comes into your life, it begins now. As he begins to change and shape me from the inside out, like a phoenix from the ashes. That as I follow him, more and more, it's glimpses through this broken jar of clay in which the light of the resurrection power of Christ comes streaming Ever so slightly. See, that's how we are to live now. We live in between who I am and who I am to be. And what Jesus is saying is in light of what I'm doing in your life, you need to meld your culture and you need to meld your Christianity. They can no longer be separated. Can no longer reform your life here, waiting for that life to come. Jesus said, You are in error, Sadducees, because you do not know the Scriptures and you do not know the power of God. And so, if we want to get serious about living the resurrection life now, we need to know these two things know the Scriptures and know the power of God. The Scriptures testify about Christ. And they testify that the kingdom is what we are to seek first. And so I must no longer go to the Bible learning how to leverage him for my purposes, but rather learning how to grow to become more and more used for his purposes. I've talked a lot about the concept of meditation. What I'm learning. God says to Joshua, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it Day and night, so that you will be careful to do everything written in it. People say, I don't I don't know how to meditate. Yes, you do. It's called anxiety. Right? Whatever you focus on, like the anxious thoughts that we have, that's meditation. He's saying, take my word, take my verses, and start doing to those what you do with anxiety. He says day and night. What would happen if we did that? Is that gonna involve change in my life? Yeah, it is. We probably can't play in our apps as much as we used to. Maybe not as much magazine time. I wonder if God took your mind and my mind and started playing them and what our thoughts are throughout the day. How much of it is devoted to thinking God's thoughts after him? I didn't say this, guys. Jesus did. And he said this because he wants us to take hold of resurrection life now. He has so much to teach us. If only we're willing to listen. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Let's not be in error because we don't know the scriptures. Are you coming to adult education? You're going to learn the Bible if you come to this church. We do a lot of things terribly. Okay, But you're going to learn the Bible if you come to the church. So are you taking advantage of our community groups for sermon discussions? Are you taking advantage of adult education? We have spiritual life studies, one-on-one discipleship. Do you want to be a part of that? We'll make that happen. Know the scriptures. And you're in an error because you don't know the power of God. God is all about the redemption of the world. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything will be laid bare. Man, I love my new, where is it? Oh, I don't have it. I got this new wallet. It's made of horse hide. It's beautiful. It smells great. It's going to get burned up. So I can stare at it, but not too long, Right? can't be content with this world because there are only two things ultimately that are going to remain after the fire, aren't they? People and the things done for God. That's it. People and the things that you have done for God. And so God calls us to be a part of recognizing the power of God and participating in it. That means my accomplishments, my possessions, My medical practice, my legal practice, my homemaking, my teaching, they're all tools. They're all tools for God to use his power through me to transform people's lives. You probably never thought you were a conduit for the power of God. That's exactly what God's calling you to be. I've gone over for the 50th time I'm going to get yelled at I simply leave with this thought whatever you believe that Jesus came to do that's what you're going to go to him for Lord I need some help God I need you and I need a life God I need a better house God I want to experience your resurrection life And I want to be a part of your resurrection plan. Because whatever you need from Jesus, that's what you're going to get. And my greatest fear is our needs from Jesus are way too small. Let's not be Sadducees. Let's not be Pharisees. Let's be Christians. He came that we might have life to give life to us and to produce life through us. You are an error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. May that not be said of this church. May it not be said of you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. It's all true. Thank you for your life. You're in the resurrection business, not the reformation business. Help us to live the resurrection life. Give us courage and don't let us settle, Lord, because we will without your help. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.